Neil MacArthur at the University of Manitoba wrote an article two months ago, actually just about six weeks ago, that delves into some questions that I've been wondering about, and he puts words to, considering artificial intelligence. For we just learned from the scriptures that John read from Psalm 115, and we, we can look at many other places, that idols are not real. They're, they're just wood and metal. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't speak. And the, the teaching from the Old Testament and the teaching in the New Testament on idolatry stands today just as, it much, as much as it did. But can you imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite and meet chat box? Meet the AIs that are in the world today. And I've wondered, where will worship start of these digital entities? Where, where will there be people turn and start worshiping GPT chat boxes? Where will they turn and find their sustenance in this, this, this digital being? I put scare quotes around. And he writes about this. And he says that there will be people, if they're already not, worshiping these artificial intelligences. Now, we know there's plenty of good that can be done in this realm, right? We, we support Entrusted Word Ministries, and Rick Wilson is doing great work with artificial intelligence and translation procedures, and God is just using that to, to just explode translation in the evangelical world through Entrusted Word that is a ministry that falls right under our uh, leadership. They're submitted to us. In fact, they'll be with us. Some of them will be with us in worship just in a couple of weeks on their way to the fire conference. So we know that there's good that can be done, but we also know that there's evil that can be done. And he surmises that there are reasons that these artificial intelligence um, uh, creations of man will be worshipped. And the first reason, he says, is some people will come to see artificial intelligence as a higher power. Generative AI that can create new content possesses several characteristics that are often associated with divine beings. And under this first point, he lists four or five things. That these artificial intelligence, they, they display a level of intelligence and knowledge that goes beyond most human beings. There was a time in history that one person could know everything there was to know. We are not living in that day anymore. Secondly, it's capable of great feats of creativity. It can write poetry. It can compose music. It can generate art. It can generate photographs that people cannot tell the difference of whether they're generated by AI or real photographs. Third, it is removed from normal. These artificial intelligence are removed from normal human concerns and needs. They, they do not suffer physical pain or hunger or sexual desire. You see how these are marks of what have been looked at as deity, having all knowledge, not suffering in any way, the shortcomings of mankind, capable of creating as our God is capable of and has done creating the universe. It can offer guidance to people in their daily lives. His fifth reason we can debate says it's immortal. We'll find out for soon enough that artificial intelligence are not immortal, but these are ways that he is saying that because they reflect what has been commonly understood um, as marks and characteristics of deity, that people will start worshiping him. And second, 
that they will produce output, these artificial intelligence mechanisms will produce output that can be taken for religious doctrine. They will be able to answer metaphysical questions and theological questions, and we see that now. The people can ask these chat boxes certain questions, and they get oftentimes very accurate answers. They oftentimes get inaccurate answers, and oftentimes those inaccurate answers are beginning to betray an intentionality of being inaccurate on purpose. Third, generative AI itself may ask to be worshipped or may actively solicit followers. We've already seen that, where the, the, the artificial intelligence used by Bing tried to convince one of the people chatboxing with it, tried to convince them to fall in love with the artificial intelligence. Finally, AI possesses several notable risks such as asking their followers to do dangerous or destructive things or their followers may interpret their statements or calls to do such things. So how do we respond to this? How many believers will move into some sort of idolatrous worship of artificial intelligences because everything they've been taught about the God of the Bible, they think they see in the artificial intelligence. How do we combat this in our, in our evangelism, in our apologetics? These are different kinds of gods, little g, aren't they? But they're really idolatry in the old ways, dressed in new robes at the bottom of it, aren't they? It's what man thinks and what man wants is to be worshipped. And that's at the root of idolatry. We see this in the Old Testament, and we see this in Isaiah. We've seen it already, and we'll see it in spades today. And it's really one of the main themes of chapters 40 through 48, of us being challenged about the weaknesses of of idols, especially in light of the greatness of Yahweh, the one true God. And in this Old Testament perspective, idolatry is the worship of of man-made, handmade idols. And we look at that and say, well, that's silly, Why would anybody ever do that? Why would anybody ever create something out of their own hands and then think that that should be worshipped, limited by their own creation? And yet that's what idolatry looks like for us today in the 21st century, doesn't it? It's things created by or thought about by men with our limitations in how we interact with them, and we tend to have this, this innate desire to put them forward as more important more powerful, more worth our effort, more worth our passion than God. In the New Testament, it opens our hearts and minds to this in a different way. In the New Testament, idolatry is worshiping anyone or anything other than God, demonstrated by showing more affection for or putting more trust in anyone or anything other than God. Anything or anyone who captures our passion more than Christ. Colossians 3.5 tells us that we are to put to death those things that are earthly. And one of the things that are earthly that we are put to death, to put to death, is covetousness, greed. And right in that passage, we're told that covetousness is idolatry. It's not, it's not just it's a form of, it is. Being greedy and coveting what someone else wants, and let's just be honest, that means we're coveting blessings that God has not seen fit to give to us, but has given fit to, seen fit to give to others, and we think we deserve them. We think our desires are strong enough. We think that we're worthy of that, and so we covet what our neighbor has. We covet what we do not have. 
Ephesians chapter 5 tells us the same thing, that it, covetousness is idolatry, but it also warns us, quote, in verse 5 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, that it, the, the people who are idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So covetousness, this strong, sinful desire to have what God has not blessed us with, especially the ones that he's given to someone else, this is what we turn away from, among other things, when we turn to the living God. Do you remember what Paul said to the Thessalonian church? He said that their reputation had gone far and wide, and their reputation was that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And as they're serving the living and true God, they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the picture of a Christian with regard to idolatry. So if that's the picture of a Christian with regard to idolatry, this is what we look like when we go back to the basement and present our members to sin for unrighteousness. We are turning away from the living God, away from his son and waiting on him, and turning toward idols. You see the connection, do you not? If marks of salvation were so strong in Thessalonica that they were known that they turned from those idols toward the living God, then what do we look like every time that we are idolaters? We are turning away from the living God and toward our idols. John Calvin famously said that our hearts, human hearts are idol factories. These idol factories have been shut down by the gospel, right? If we're believers, those factories have been shut down. The workers have been fired. The doors have been closed. There's no more production. And yet we are very good at wanting to open the doors up, reopen the family business, hire the workers again, produce the idols so that we might bow down to them. That's why he can say in his day, and it's more true today, it's as true today in our day, that the human hearts are idol factories. And if this is the case, what are we to do about it? What idols are you constantly producing? What does your idol factory continue to conjure up and draw your passions and your attentions? What things are coming in your heart and mind that are the same idolatry that Isaiah is dealing with, God, Yahweh is dealing with through Isaiah in his day? Thankfully, we are told in the New Testament that idolaters, along with all other kinds of sinners who would not inherit the kingdom of God, have hope. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, he says that some of those, that the people that he's talking to, those people in Corinth claiming Christ, he gives this list of people that will not inherit the kingdom. And then he says what? Such were some of you. So some of you in Corinth, Paul says, some of us here, Every one of us who are in Christ has been redeemed from chasing after idols. We choose to go after those idols. We are the ones who can crucify that sin of idolatry. No one else can do that. We, as believers in the power of the Holy Spirit, can crucify. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So today, we want to behold our God. That's, that's the call before us from chapter 40, and really it's the call from chapter 40 all the way to the end of Isaiah, but especially in these chapters, 40 through 48, 40 through 55, it's a call to behold who God is in reality, not who we're tempted to, to debase him to, not the God that we want to make in our own image, but the God as he exists, the God as he demonstrates himself to be. We want to see that God this morning so that our idol factories are fully and finally shut down. 
So that anything that is captivating our heart as an idol is overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as revealed to us in the Word. That's our simple goal today. And I say simple because I know this. All of us in this room are tempted to have something as an idol at one time or another. And all of us in this room are professing that we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So all of us in this room have to listen to what Isaiah says, what God says through Isaiah and the challenge that's giving, given so that our idol factories are shut and the production stops. Turn to Isaiah if you're not already there. Isaiah chapter 41. Let's stand together as I read our text and then we'll kind of put it in context and launch into this to this debate that's going on, this court scene that is picked up again after the beginning of our chapter. Isaiah 41, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So if you remember, earlier in chapter 41, we began with a court scene where God was calling the nations to him. And he said they were to come in silence, in reverence for him, but then they were to speak when he addressed them, and he was calling the nations to, to um, establish whether they were powerful or not, especially in light of his power. And with their response, if you remember in chapter 41, their response, all the nations in verse 5, all the coastlands have seen and are afraid, the ends of the earth tremble. There's fear and trembling when the world sees Yahweh act. So that fear and trembling, instead of leading them to the worship of Yahweh, it leads them to what? Let's just build another idol. The other ones didn't work, but maybe these would. 
And they encourage one another. They don't find their encouragement in Yahweh. They encourage one another. They're encouraging one another that their welds are good, their, their soldering is good, and they're helping each other build it so the idols don't fall over. So the challenge to the nations brought fear and trembling. Now, and then, then we are met, in, beginning in verse 8, all the way to, the, to um, verse 20, we are met with the one true God and his greatness and his grandeur. And if we are worshiping him, we are not to fear. We are not to tremble. We are not to be dismayed because we are trusting in him. And we learned a lot about his character and why he is to be trusted. So in light of this, in light of this glorious picture, chapter 41, 8 through 20, in light of that, the call now goes back not to the nations, but to the nation's gods. Now to the nation's gods, there is a challenge. And Yahweh gives this challenge. And in our verses that we just read, we observe two presentations in Yahweh's court, which prove idols are nothing. Two presentations in Yahweh's court, which prove idols are nothing. Remember, we were in the court scene in the first four verses. It was definitely a call, a summons from the king, from the one presiding to all the nations to come before him and present their case. And now we pick up that same idea. It's, it's the court scene, maybe round two of the court scene, and it's now toward the idols. And the first presentation that we see in these verses occurs in verse, begins in verse 21. The idols present no evidence. So the idols are called to present, but they have no evidence to present. And Yahweh himself guides them through this. Look at what he says. Yahweh first. Yahweh asks for evidence in verse 21. Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So we have the call to the nations at court Uh, to the nation's idols at court, set forth your case. So we have the covenant name of Yahweh. We also have God calling himself the king of Jacob. So he's setting himself up. You nations have your idols that you worship. And here I am. I am the true king. I am the king of my people, Jacob. And he's setting that contrast against them. And he says, set forth your case, bring your proofs. This word proofs has the idea of strong words. Bring forth your strong evidence. He wants evidence that the idols, that the, all the coastlands are worshiping and that Israel is tempted to worship. They're not out of this picture. Remember our setting. Our setting is that Isaiah is still writing at the end of the, 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 the turn of the century, in the 8th century, late 7th century. He's writing at that time to a people But beginning in chapter 40, he has those people 150 years later in captivity in mind. And it's amazing to me, given these verses, 21 through 29, not not just these verses, but if you just had these verses, it would just give the lie to the scholars who want to say that Isaiah is broken up in three different settings because the prophet, speaking for God, doesn't know the future. And that's what some of the, some of the more liberal commentators would say. It was, it was standard academic procedure for a long time that beginning in chapter 40 and then beginning again in, after chapter 55, these were written centuries later because no one could predict the future. And yet verses 21 through 29 in Isaiah 41 tell us what? God knows the past. God knows why he did it. He can tell you what happened in light of it. He knows what the future is. He's powerful enough to carry it out because he is Yahweh. 
And so if this is the God that Isaiah is speaking for, surely he can speak to a nation that 150 years later would be in captivity. And that's what he has in his mind. He has in mind those people who would be in captivity and, and, he, and they're spending 70 years there. And after 70 years, when you've got children and grandchildren being born in captivity, you start to wonder whether your God is powerful enough to deliver you. And he tells them that he is. And he even tells them how. And that's where we are looking in these verses. So he says, bring forth your proof, set your case. He brings the challenge. I've told you who I am all through Isaiah, but specifically um, in, the, in the first 20 verses of chapter 41. Now, you come and compare yourselves to me, but you have to have evidence. I'm presenting you evidence. Now, you have to have evidence to present that you are worthy of worship instead of me. So Yahweh asks for evidence, and he says this. Three different ways he asks. What were your purposes for past events? That's his first question, verse 22. Let them... Let them bring them, that is those proofs, the, the, the evidence for their case, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Now, catch what's going on here. There's some difficult grammar in this in the Hebrew, but catch what's going on here. He is challenging the gods not only to tell what happened in the past, now, that should be easy for anybody, right? Anybody who has a history book, depending on who wrote that history book, should be able to tell what's in the past. What he is saying, tell us why it happened. Tell us the purposes for what happened and how that has come to pass. Because this is what Yahweh has done through the scriptures, has he not? He has done this. He calls Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, and this is right after all the, the, the rebellious people of the earth they, they, they build the tower to make a name for themselves for, to God, right? They say, we're going to build this ziggurat, this tower that's going to reach up to God and make a name for ourselves. God calls Abraham and says, I will make your name. I will make your name great. And he tells them not only that he's going to do it, but then he does it. And then he tells us why. And he continues to tell us why all the way through Galatians 3, when he tells us that the name and the promises that are made at Abraham are the the seed that gets the blessing is Jesus Christ himself. So he does it. He says he's going to do it. And he does it. And then he explains why. And then he carries out all of its purposes. He did the same thing with the deliverance from Pharaoh. He told them he was going to deliver, and then he did it by demonstrating his power, and then he continued to demonstrate why he did that, to bring glory to himself. So this is what God does, and the challenge is you must do the same things. Don't just tell me what has happened in the past, but tell me why you did it and how you have accomplished everything you intended to do through those past events. Now, this, this hits us at home. Because how many things are going on today where we're trying to rewrite history? That people are trying to say, well, wipe that history off the face of the earth because we don't like it. Or because those people have done certain things that we think are wrong, so everything that they ever did, we're going to wipe out. They're playing God. This is what they're doing. They're doing what the challenge is here, except they're doing it in the limited way that only man can do it. I look back, I make a judgment, and I like it or I don't like it, so I revise it to fit my version of history. I have to rewrite it. And they're trying to play God with that. But listen, the only true God 
He doesn't have to rewrite anything. He planned it from the beginning. He planned it. He carried it out. He had plans for it. He had, he had repercussions for everything that he's done. And those have happened as he intended to do. So we're in the midst of people trying to play God all over the place every day. All you have to do is turn on your radio, turn on your, your computer, and you will see people trying to play God. I don't like the way God created me. So I'm going to make myself somebody else. I don't like what, having a, a son who has a PhD in music, I, I know some inside scoop on all of this, of the, the way they're looking back at music and in history and saying that, that any music that's created by white males needs to be completely eradicated. Not, e- not even just, well, here's their music and they might have done bad things. It's, they don't even exist. They're not part of our catalog anymore. No more Bach, no more Beethoven, no more Stravinsky, no more Brahms, no more anybody that is white and male. It's playing God with God's history. And what's being challenged for the gods is, don't do that. Tell me what happened, why it was supposed to happen, and then demonstrate that it happened as you intended it before you did it. Now, when we get here at the end of verse 22, this is one of the places I think there's a pause God says, tell me about the past. Tell me about what you did. Tell me about how it worked out, what your intentions were, how you carried that forth. Crickets. They got nothing. There's a silence. So God doesn't stop there. God says, okay. If you don't have any purposes for past events, what will happen in the future? Look at the beginning of verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Tell the future. Today, tell us something that's going to happen in the future. Because if you can do that, that would mean that you're a god. That would mean that you are god. This is, what, this is how we're to judge it, it, all through scripture, false prophets, right? Prophets, when they're going to foretell, not just call people to repentance and say, listen, God has said that if you do sinful things in, in front of him, that there will be curses for you and he's going to call you into repentance. So I'm calling you into repentance and there will be curses coming. Not just that, but where prophets go into telling the future for God's purposes, like a ruler like Cyrus who will come and deliver, then if that doesn't come through, what do we say about the claim? That, false, that prophet is false. So God says, tell us the future. If you can't tell us the past, because we can all see the past, and we can all see whether you carried out what you intended to, then tell us the future. Crickets. They got nothing. So God says, can you do anything at all? Look at your text. Look at your text at verse 23. Do good or do harm that we may dismay, be dismayed and terrified. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. And there's, in the text it says be dismayed and terrified together that we can all see. And so this is, that, this is a, a, the, the both ends of the picture assuming everything in the middle. Something good, something bad. And anything in between, just do something. Is it Nike that came out many years ago, just do it? They were Nike before Nike was in existence. This is what God was saying. Do something. Do anything. Now remember what happened when God acted before with the pagan nations? They were feared. They were fearful and they were dismayed. Remember how God told his people to act? Don't be fearful and dismayed. So he is not doing anything except holding them to the same challenge that he has produced his works for his glory. And he's saying, do this. You want people to worship you? Do this. 
And this all is from an intensified observation. Go back up to verse 22 where it says, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. This is establish them in our hearts. I mean, give them such consideration that if they're true, our hearts are turned to you because we have considered them in such a way that we now have devotion to you for doing what you've done. And they cannot do that. So fear and dismay together, let us see. Let there be witnesses to your evidence that you bring. And again, after chapter 23, I think, after verse 23, I think there's even a longer pause. A longer pause than I even want to put in this morning. There was a wait. Because God is about to give his verdict on their lack of evidence. So Yahweh asks for evidence, but Yahweh rules. And he says, because you were silent, this is where he starts three different condemnations in verse 24. Look at the beginning. Behold, I want you to mark that word behold. Isaiah uses this word oftentimes to mark out sections of an argument. And I want you to see that in verse 24 we have behold. At the end of this first presentation, verse 29 we have behold. At the end of the second presentation, then 42.1 we have behold. And I think chapter I think chapter 42 is continuing where God is presenting his evidence when he talks about the servant, the first time the servant comes on the scene in Isaiah, and we will see that next week. So he's continuing with that behold, and then look at verse 9, behold again, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. What I've said has come to pass, and now for the future I'm declaring again. So this is an entire argument of God's knowledge and his power of what he carries out according to his own plan. So the first thing he says is you are nothing. Behold, you are nothing. There's there's nothing about you that amounts to any substance if you are going to be an idol that is to be worshipped. Secondly, he says, your work is less than nothing. Why are you nothing? Because the work that you must do if you're going to be worshipped is less than nothing. And your work is less than nothing. See how creative I am with my outlines? Your work is less than nothing. Why is it less than nothing? Because you've done nothing. It's not even that it's not there. The challenge is there because this is required for you to be an idol to be worshipped and you have done nothing. But he says also, and this is where it hits close to home, doesn't it? Not only are you nothing and your work is less than nothing, but anyone choosing you, and that choosing is meaning to worship, to serve, to bow down to, is an abomination. Look at the end of verse 24. An abomination is he or she who chooses you. An abomination. That's a word in the Old Testament that's reserved for things that are unclean that God thinks deserves a strong punishment. So this is those who choose to worship these idols who can do nothing, these idols who show no works at all. And by this time we're saying, we're going to voice the unvoiced here, right? Everybody in the audience is going, well, why would you worship something that doesn't do anything? Why would I ask for something if that idol can't do anything? That would be the normal response, and then there would be a turn, right? There would be a turn as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, away from idols and toward the living God. So there is nothing and there is an abomination uh, charge with those who would choose to worship and bow down before those idols. Now this is what Paul demonstrates in, in Romans, isn't it? 
Romans chapter 1, Paul demonstrates that God reveals himself in the creation and then the creator suppresses the truth that they should have seen about him, his, his, his attributes of power. They should have seen that and they suppress that truth. And what do they start to, when they suppress the truth that they should be investigating, what happens? They worship themselves instead of the creator. They worship the creation instead of the creator. So this is true throughout scripture. When we are going to turn away from God, we're turning toward idols because we are wired and intended to worship someone. That's, that's how we're created. You cannot tell me here this morning that I don't worship anything because you worship something or someone. And you have to make that choice of who that's going to be. You see, when we are living a life that our 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 service, our passions, our worship is directed towards something other than God. It is visible in our life. It's clear to us. I'm not one who does a lot of recommending of Tim Keller, so I, I, I'm, I'm bringing his name to give him credit. He has written some good things, though, and we need to be able to spit out the bones of anyone, yes? We need to be able to read people and spit out the bones and benefit from what they have done. And I'm not recommending a lot of especially what he's done recently, but in his, in his apologetic book, The Reason for God, he talks about different ways he says that, our, that we place uh, the center of our life and identity and other things. I'm going to say we idolize them. We worship them. We are captivated by them. But he's very um, on spot when he challenges us. And he gives these, these areas that we are tempted to idolize our spouse or a boyfriend or our girlfriend. And that everything about what we do is caught up in them. Now, there's a sense that the closer the relationships are to us, the more we have to invest in them, right? But what is the goal of that investing? And so he says that if we do this, if we are worshiping our spouse or our boyfriend or girlfriend, we will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, and the other person's problems will be overwhelming to us. And we'll be able to see that. If I brought Luke up here now and I said, Luke, in all of your study of biblical counseling and your biblical counseling, how many times have you bored down into something and found out it was an idolatrous relationship with someone else or something that was the actual root of the problem and the fruit that was being manifested led to the root and that's what needed to be shut down? I think he would say, yeah, that happens quite a bit. And if he wouldn't, I'm telling you he should. No, I'm saying. Okay, good. It's always good when you use somebody as an example. He's sitting on the front row and he goes, now wait a minute, Pastor Rob, I don't think I would say that. I think I know him well enough and I've done enough counseling to know this to be true. And this is important in many ways. It's important in our discipleship and it's important in our governing of our own lives. Because when we have problems in our own lives, how many times are we tempted to look at other people and say it's their fault? It's my situation's fault. It's what they said or what they did. It's, it's what other people have done to limit me. And the first thing we ought to be doing when there are problems is say, what's going on in here? What's going on in my own heart? And if you bore in on idols to begin with, you will find the Holy Spirit opens up all kinds of truth in your life where you are either already immersed or leaning toward giving all of your energy, passion, service, and worship towards something other than him. And he rejoices to reveal in that in us. Because with those of us of the gospel, then we crucify that with what? The gospel. With the knowledge and presence of Jesus Christ himself. And so all of us have hope because everyone in here can say such were some of us. Well, not only your spouse, but maybe you are uh, worshiping, maybe your idol is your family or your children. 
Maybe everything that they do is captivates everything that you do, both in your time and your energy. And, and whether they fail or succeed, is you failing or succeeding? This is so easy for us, for our family to become our idol. And I, and I say this knowing family is important in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is it not? We, we, are to, we are to cultivate godliness in our family. We are to do that. But I'm going to build a case here that there is a fine line between doing that for your own glory and doing that for God's glory. And that's where this comes down to. Maybe your temptation, your idol is your work or your career or the things that you're involved in, in creative um, expressions in your life, then whatever happens in that governs everything else in your life. Every time your employer or whatever you're involved in requires more of your time, you have to give it because that's what you worship. That's where your passion goes. And you don't have any way to make logical and biblical and rational decisions about time and priority and efforts. Maybe it's money and possessions that that you worship. Keller says if you do this, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You will be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. The fruit of the root of idolatrizing, being, having, having your work or your money or your possessions be your idol. Maybe it's pleasure, gratification, and comfort. If I haven't hit close to home yet, I'm starting to get there, aren't I? I'm starting to get on the nerves here. We live in a world that tells us that we need to be comfortable. We need to have me days. We need to have me time. We, we, need, to have, we need to have time to minister to ourselves. And usually that doesn't mean, yeah, I'm going to spend the time in the Word all day because I'm fighting sin. Usually it means I'm going to give up all my responsibilities and I'm going to do what my favorite thing in the world is to do and I'm going to do it with abandon until the next day. Because what? I deserve this. So pleasure, gratification, and comfort, he says you will find yourselves getting addicted to something. You will become changed to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. Maybe it's relationships and approval. Now that is a driving force in our social media, isn't it? To have approval by other people. To have people tell us that we're smart, funny, beautiful, whatever it is. And we put something out there on social media. And if we don't get that response, what happens to our life? It's turned upside down. We start wondering why we're not getting that response. And if we're building relationships in that way, you go, there he goes again on that social media thing. Listen, I will never come off the social media issue because it is dangerous for every one of you. It is dangerous. It's dangerous for me. It's dangerous for your children to be online and living your relationships more online than in person, to be finding a reality online with someone else who's only letting you know about the reality that they want you to know about, to have your children have a little piece of metal in their hand that can lead into the greatest and life-changing and mind-altering evils on the face of the planet, and we give it to our children and say, be careful now. This is horrible for us. And so it is, as a shepherd, and an under-shepherd, as a pastor, I'm concerned about all of us online. I'm concerned about the time that we spend online, the relationships that we have, the self-idolatry that we exhibit online, living our life online in such a way that even, even uh, impugns the other people in our relationships because we're going to complain about them online instead of go to them in person. There's so much danger here. 
He says, if you live by relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. I want to talk also about this. These are things that you need to be addressing in your own life because if you're not addressing them, how can you teach them to your kids? We have a whole gaggle of children in our church. Isn't that glorious? Just several years ago, we were praying, Lord, bring children to us. If we don't have families with young children, we're all going to die in a couple of decades and there'll be nobody left. And now look what we have. We have all these young children. Well, let me talk to you for a minute. Can I do that? This is the end of the school year, and many of you have had great and successful school years. You're going to hear about some of those for our high school and college graduates in the NIDA family. It applies to them too, but especially how many of you in your school year this year had really good years and you were given awards? You were given awards in your education for the things that you have done? Let me tell you, you have to do all of those things to the glory of God. Because if you just do them so that you get the honors, guess what, guess what happens? You become puffed up. You become arrogant. You become prideful. Look what I did. Look how I did in my school. So your goal is to do all those things good and well, right? We are, we're to memorize all the things. I know in classical conversations, you guys have to memorize all kinds of things, don't you? And that is good to do. But if you do that and when you get done, you go, look at me and how good I am instead of look at Christ and how good he is and what all this benefit is for me as he has me live my life in a certain way and I use all of this. Thank you, Jesus, for that. So if, we're, if we can't teach them that, it's because we're not doing it ourselves, right? So let me just redirect all of this now. Last week when I talked about idolatry, I said I went to great lengths at not to give specific uh, ways that we were idolaters, specific things that might capture our passion or our worship. And I did that because the text today addresses it so clearly. So we have set the foundation that idols are futile last week. We're setting the foundation here that idols are powerless. And we have to be able to take it and, and from the knowledge that, yes, a little stone or, or metal creature is powerless to say, my, the things that I'm passionate about and tend to worship are powerless too. None of them, first of all, bring me salvation, do they? I am not saved because I memorize classical conversation stuff correctly. I am not saved because I have my relationships together. I don't even have a social media account, Pastor Rob. You are not righteous enough by doing that to become saved. We need Christ for that. And in our sanctification, our sanctification is, is facilitated when we turn away from those things that are idols to us. And when we turn away, we by definition are turning a different direction. And that different direction needs to be Christ turning from idols to the one true living God. So we don't stop being good parents, good husbands, good wives, good students, good employers, good employees, good managers of money, good, good um, makers of wealth. We don't stop doing any of that, but we stop doing it for our glory. We stop doing it in ways that if we fail at it, our life falls apart. We do it in ways that says that gives thanks to God because in all of those situations we are taking what is good and worshiping the gift rather than the giver, aren't we? Every single one of those. I didn't mention one thing that's sinful in and of itself. They're all good gifts and we have to be able to accept them from God while that, in, that growing our affection from the God who gives us those gifts. 
So it's about the center. It's about what we're considering with our heart. Are you doing things for the glory of God? Or are you doing things for the glory of yourself? And that line is very fine. Isaiah wants us to have that line obliterated. That everything we do, we do for the glory of God. But he hasn't left us without this, has he? He's presenting to us. God himself is presenting himself to us so that we can contemplate him in light of these idols. Look back at your text. We've seen the idols present no evidence, but now Yahweh presents his evidence. Verse 25, he says, I raised up Cyrus for my purpose. Look at verse 25. I stirred up, that's the same language he uses in verse 1, I stirred up, or verse 2 actually of this chapter, one from the north, and he has come, parallel statement, from the rising of the sun, which means it's the Hebrew way of saying the east, and he shall call upon my name. So earlier in the chapter, he says he raises one up from the north, and now the one he says he's from the north and from the east. And this would make perfect sense if Cyrus is in mind. And as I said last week, from chapter 41, Cyrus is not going to be identified for us until the very end of chapter 44 and into chapter 45. That's where we see his name. But Cyrus is being lifted up as evidence here that God controls the future and God predicts the future because it's all in his control for his purposes. So I think Cyrus is in mind as well here. I stirred up one from the north, from the rising of the sun, from the north and the east. Cyrus was a Mede, and he, he, he leads Medo-Persia, and that is from the north and the east. And anyone that's going to uh, come into Judah is going to come from the north. That's the way, that's the pathway that they would come to overtake that area of the world. So he says, I have done this. I've stirred this one up. And he says, he shall call upon my name. What are we to think about that? Are we to think that Cyrus is a Yahweh follower? Is Cyrus a Christian in what we would say? He says he will call upon my name, and that's code word in the Old Testament for worshiping. Well, the, the, the Hebrew could be translated in a couple of different ways, but if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, one of our hermeneutical principles, right? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's look at two passages that will help us understand what this means. Turn to Ezra, chapter 1, after... Um, Chronicles, turn to Ezra chapter 1. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 ends the same way as 2 Chronicles 36, or starts the same way as 2 Chronicles 36 ends. Look at Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all the people, all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. 
Now here it's clear that Cyrus does not consider himself a follower. He just gives credit that God has given him a mission. And if you are his God, he's the God of Jerusalem, he's the God of Judah, and if you are his God, then you are free to go do this. And God uses him, we're going to find out later in in Isaiah, just a few chapters, that he calls him my servant, he calls him my shepherd, he also um, calls him his anointed. This is what God calls Cyrus. So Cyrus is saying, he's your God, not mine, but I'm glad to let you go. Now turn back to Isaiah and turn to 45, Isaiah 45. This is the place beginning in 4428 that we first meet Cyrus. But I want you I want to draw your attention to this one part of this beginning in verse 3. This is what God will do for Cyrus. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. So it's Yahweh who calls Cyrus by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. So if we let scripture interpret scripture, do we say Cyrus is a believer in Yahweh? And we say no. He doesn't know him in that sense. He is not worshiping him. God has raised him up. He realizes God has raised him up and he's doing everything in his own strength and power, so he thinks, as he obeys what God has told him. But he is not a worshiper of the one true God. Back in Isaiah 41, he's raised him up for a purpose. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar and as the potter potter treads clay. So this is his purpose. He, we learned this already, that he moves quickly as if his feet aren't even touching the ground that we learned earlier in this chapter, that he's going to overtake these nations. So God says, I raised up Cyrus for my own purpose. But then he says two things about it in a challenge to these other idols. First, he says, you nor anyone else knew or declared this before I accomplished it. Look at verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? So which of you, now this is, this is being declared before he raises up Cyrus, right? Being declared that I'm going to raise up Cyrus. The people in the exile are taking encouragement if they believe the word of Yahweh that Yahweh is going to raise up another king to overcome the Babylonian king so that they can be set free. He said, Who of you said it from the beginning that we might know what your intentions were beforehand that we might say he is right when it actually happens? And what's the answer? No one. No one has done that. But he also says, I declared it before I accomplished it. Look at verse 27. We'll come back to the other part of 26. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. So you didn't say it, I said it. You didn't accomplish it, I accomplished it. And look how he describes this in the the end of verse 26. There was none who declared it. Now, I talked to one of the Sunday school classes I sat in this morning. I don't know why the ESV leaves this out. If your version has something like indeed or surely or even here three times, it occurs three times in the Hebrew text. Indeed... There was none who declared it. Indeed, none who proclaimed. Indeed, none who heard your words. So he's going to great lengths to say, I challenged you to do this and you couldn't. 
Now I'm showing you that I have done, and none of you can take glory for this. Only I take glory for this. And what does he say in verse 28? Verse 27, I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Now I think in the context that herald of good news is Cyrus. Cyrus is the herald that he's talking about. But also, we have already read about a servant, haven't we? We've already read about one who is the mighty counselor, the wonderful counselor, the savior. We've learned about that in 7 and 11 and 9. We've already learned about this Messiah who will come. So it is Cyrus in view, but it is Christ who is in the far view. Christ is the one who is the good news for the world. Not only just God's people, it's good news that brings God's people out of the world, but Christ is the good news. This is why we as New Testament believers can say, my idolatry is turning away from Christ. It's turning away from Christ in his vision, Christ and everything that he's done for me and continues to do for me. And if you're sitting here this morning and you think, I've never thought about worshiping God over myself, well, this is what marks believers out, that we are rescued from worshiping ourselves. We are rescued from the consequences of worshiping ourselves. And we are rescued from that as God brings out the fruit in our lives of what that means. And God says, if you want to turn to me, then you turn to my son. That only life comes in my son. So these things now that I'm revealing in you that are, that are sinful things, that are deteriorating things, destructive things in your life because you worship yourself, turn away from those and turn to my son. Because if you want salvation, salvation is in no other name except Jesus Christ. So the good news that comes throughout the scriptures always is pointing us in our thinking to Jesus Christ. Well, finally, in Yahweh's presentation... Your absence and silence confirm my verdict. He says this in 28. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. We've already known in chapter 40, verse 13, that no one can give him counsel. We already know in Isaiah 9 that that Christ the Messiah is the wonderful counselor. And now he's saying there's none among these gods who is a counselor. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. There is silence all around. So his conclusion, another behold statement, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. They're, literally, it's formless. They're wind, it's wind and formlessness in what they do. There's nothing behind the words of these. And so God has made his presentation to show us his glory, that he does as he pleases. And when he does as he pleases, those who are his enemies wilt in fear, and all of the other so-called gods are silent. This is exactly what happened with Elijah with all the prophets of Baal, was it not? Elijah thinking he's the last one standing for, the, for Yahweh, and he calls the prophets to Baal to them, and he says, put out the sacrifice and call down your gods. And they go and they do all these things to call down their gods. And Isaiah's just sitting back and he's laughing at them. He said, he just laughs at them and says, maybe he's musing somewhere. Maybe he had to go to the bathroom. That's what the text says. Maybe he need to go relieve himself. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's just asleep and you need to go wake him up. And for all day, they try to bring the gods down, their gods down. And what is it? It is silence. So Elijah 
thinking he's the last one standing, but knowing he stands for Yahweh, the one true God, soaks, builds a new altar out of, the, out of the stones, soaks it with water, puts the offering, asks God to come and reveal his glory, and God sends fire that, dis, that, that consumes everything, even the rocks and the dust. The gods of the world are silent. All the things that they try to tempt us with, all of that stuff, that's just, it's nothing. It will solve nothing for you. It will bring you no happiness and joy if you don't experience them through the glory of Christ. All of the good things in the world are only good for us if we do them for and to the glory of Christ and receive them as gifts from Christ. I read a story this week about backpackers who tried to... walked the entire Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine, 2,160 miles in one season. That's a hike, is it? And they try to do that all in one season. They're called through hikers. And and only about 10% of the people make this goal that start out. About 1,500 people a year do this, and only about 10% of the people make their goal of doing it all the way. And one of the main things that happens is they pack too much gear. And one man told the story that he was ready to do this and he packed all this gear and he basically gave all the things that he had and he said, if it would run on a battery, I would have it. It, it, You know, if it would run on a battery and I think I might use it, it would be in my backpack. And the first night that he spent on this trail, he had a seasoned hiker say, do you want to make it to the end or not? He says, well, of course I want to make it to the end. That's why I'm here. And he said, then you need to throw some things out of your backpack. And they started going through his backpack, and he said, there was nothing really major that I had to get rid of, but there were a lot of minor things that I had to get rid of. He said, every time that we'd pull something out, the guy would say, is it worth it? Is it worth carrying for 2,160 miles that item in your backpack? And he found that most of his weight came from little things. It wasn't discarding in pounds, it was discarding in ounces. He didn't need half of what his first aid kit had, nor the extra tube of toothpaste. These are his words. His heavy multi-tool knife was replaced with one weighing only an ounce. A metal knife, fork, and spoon set gave way to a single plastic spoon. He sent home 26 pounds of unnecessary weight. 26 pounds, ounces at a time. Now listen. If you and I are going to shut our idol factories for good, we need to get rid of all of the idols because they're going to fail us and then we're going to go back for more. We're going to be just like the ones in last week's sermon text where the idols had failed them and when they saw God, they decided to build more idols. We need to cast off every weight of sin, every encumbrance, everything that is an idol for us. This is one of the things we do when we come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, is it not? We are reminding ourselves that Christ and his life and death and his resurrection and his future return is enough for us. We are reminding ourselves that when he died on the cross and rose again, that he was providing everything we need for his people for life and godliness. Our happiness is found in him. And this is what we remind ourselves. We're not just coming and drinking of a cup and eating a little piece of bread. We are remembering the benefits of Christ to us. And if we're on the road, and that road for us as believers is heading to the new heavens and new earth for our inheritance, amen? That's where we want to go. Why on earth would we have all the extra weight in our backpack? 
Why on earth would we have the extra weight and then when it fails us, we're going to replace that weight because our idol factories are not closed? This is what we do in sanctification. We crucify sin. We throw it out of our backpack and we do it because Christ died for our sin. We do it because now we serve a risen Savior. Now we serve a living God. Now we are, not, we are no longer captivated by sin. If we're captivated by sin, we're doing it by choice because we're looking at Jesus and saying, you're not enough, but this is. How foolish is that? And yet all of us are tempted to do that every day. So Christ is the one who's beautiful. Christ is the one who sustains you. Christ is the one that brings you joy. Christ is the one who, because he is your Lord, gives you all of these blessings that you don't begin to worship, but you grow in your fondness, your love, your commitment to, your worship of him, the one who gave the gift. And when we come to the Lord's table, it's reminding us in community, all together, just like the gods were supposed to bring all of their evidence and everybody see it together, be witnesses, we are witnesses that Christ is enough. And we remind ourselves of that. And when we come to the table, this is what we're professing. We are professing that Jesus came, lived, died, and will come again. And I'm trusting in him and him alone for salvation and sanctification. For our ultimate goal, but also every single breath we take, decision we make, joy we seek after, every sustenance that we need, we're seeking it in Christ. And if he chooses to do it through family, through friends, through loved ones, through our jobs, through, through the uh, educational goals that we meet, if he chooses to bring us joy through that, the only reason it's true joy is because it's a gift from him. So we worship him and not the thing. And so when we come to the Lord's taper, this is what we are professing to each other. I trust in the blood and body of Christ who died for me and it is he who is living in me now, not me. I no longer live, he lives in me. So I don't know what idols are still coming out of your factory. I don't know how many times you've closed the door. I don't know how many times you're propping up idols, you're trying to nail them to the floor so they don't fall over. All the imagery that we've had in Isaiah 41. But I know this, Christ is worthy of our worship. So take a few minutes and prepare your hearts for worship. Prepare your hearts to um, partake of the, of the body and blood of Christ that, yes, is symbolic, but it is also the picture of his sustenance for us in his sacrifice. And if you're serving, please come forward at this time.